Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory, to live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. In this episode of Octonom Verba, we hear part two of my interview with Eric Antonson, host of the Progression Project podcast and two-time National Costa Rican paddle surfing champion. In part one, we examined the flow multipliers of peak performance, the idea that most people have about flow is actually wrong, and how to maximize learning in short bursts. In part two, Eric returns to discuss how learning a skill with deliberate practice allows for mastery in other areas of life, learning how to play the hand that you're dealt when facing adversity, and the lessons that Eric has learned from the legendary peak performance coach, Josh Waitzkin. You can hear part one on episode 63 of Octonon Verba. And now, please enjoy part two of my interview with Eric Antonson. One of the ones that came in from my listeners or one of the people on Instagram, they asked, how can they apply this idea of intentional practice or this, this particular practice that we're trying to work on? How can they apply that if it's in an arena where there's not a coach that's around them? And, and that's kind of what people are asking because there are some things like surfing or chess or martial arts where you can have a direct relationship with somebody that can tell you immediately, but there are some where there aren't that. What would you say to that? So I think we're all our own coach to some level. And I think there are disciplines something that I, I think a lot about as well. There are disciplines where you don't really have to self-coach at all. In some of the more studied rote sports or activities like playing piano, you could probably not have a creative thought and become an incredible piano player because there's so much work that has been done. I'm not saying it's easy in any way, shape or form, I'm not taking anything away from people that are incredibly creative. My daughter plays a ton of piano. But there's so much out there. There's such a body of work on how to learn to play piano that you could never self-coach, just have a coach and get very deep into that art. There are other places like foil surfing for one, which is evolving on a daily basis, where if you're not helping yourself by... I mean, there's there's really no coaches in foil surfing yet. There's a, there, I mean, there's going to be a few. But the the folks who have gotten the best at it so far are the ones that are able to break down other people's video, analyze technique, figure out what the technique is, figure out what the best practices are, and then go and apply those or test those and then go and apply those. And so I think that that is applicable in any scenario, any activity. You can study other people who do it differently or better, and you can test what they do. This is something that I do in foil surfing. There are a few different ways to fly a foil. It's different than surfing in that you're flying on top of a wing, your foil's mounted onto a board about three feet above it, and you fly through the water. So a lot of the surfing technique will work, but there are other ways that you can fly a foil that are completely different. You can fly it like you would fly a plane. There's similarities, but there's some, some huge differences in that technique. And one of the things that I just did during my four months of going dark on everybody was I picked out who I think are the two best foilers from a technique standpoint that foil in different ways. And I spent a few weeks modeling one guy, this guy, Scotty, 
And then a few weeks modeling this other guy, Kane. It was amazing what happened. You know, you're videoing it, you're trying to go out there and mimic exactly what they do. And what was really cool is that you don't even understand the themes, right? You start with technique. I model technique, but then you discover theme. And then as you discover theme, then you can, and you're still completely mirroring what they're doing, then you can take that theme and you can integrate it back into your own work. And I think that that's possible in any, any discipline. You just find the people that are better or different, do exactly what they do, learn what you can from that activity, and then take the theme from that action and apply it to how you were doing it to take what's good about the way that you do it. It's like, if you wanted to go, if we're talking about music, you could go and learn every Hendrix solo, exactly how Hendrix plays it. And then it's not like you're going to play like Hendrix for the rest of your life, but you're going to understand the themes of how he plays, then bring it back into how you play music. Interesting. You brought that up. I played guitar when I was in high school and I love Jimi Hendrix, you know, Page, all these classic guitar, you know, rock gods. But at that time, I didn't have the technical prowess to play what they were playing because they were just light years ahead of me right. from a technical standpoint. But like you said, through stumbling to try to get to that place, I was able to come across these themes, these flavors, and bring it back into my own voice. So as you said, as I evolved and got to the place where I could play like them, I was able to still bring that back and have my influence, my voice, so to speak, just like writing or just like anything else. And that's where that theme thematically, we can bring that into any kind of, like you said, almost you were describing kind of Bruce Lee's idea of absorbing what is useful, discarding what is useless and adding what is specifically your own, which in this case is that theme. Right. And whatever that theme is. The other thing that's incredibly helpful is to find other people that want to get better at what you're doing. and spend time with them and have them help you and you help them. You know, I have a collective of a few really talented watermen that I spend a lot of time with. And we're always giving each other tons of shit, but we're always helping each other in the process of getting better, breaking down each other's videos. And what's been really cool is that our group, Mike Pedigo is, is probably the, the number one guy here. And then Ryan Finch from Foil the World, biggest Instagram account on he just moved to Jacksonville as well. And oh, nice. we battle really hard, but we're all getting better much faster because of it. That competition, they were also very constructive with the competition and helping each other. It's very cool. Yeah. Iron definitely sharpens iron for sure. There's only one way for you to get better and that's to be around people that are as good or, or better than what you are. And that's nice too, because there's that community and there's competitiveness, but you, you both want the other person to win. Right. You're both trying to get them to that level because as they elevate, they bring you along, so to speak, too, right? Yeah, we trade off and on who's the guy for a little while. And it's fun when you are, and it's terrible when you're not. <laughs> it's terrible when you were the guy, and then you suddenly become not the guy. Yeah. We're feeling in the world. And you're talking about a lot of these incredible performers in, in their arenas. For those of us that are asking more about peak performance, can you give us sort of like some of the like two or three key characteristics that you see as a common thread throughout all of those individuals? Obsession. Mm. I think that everyone that I know who is in that last 1%, and I don't put myself there, but I know a lot of those guys, they wake up and go to sleep thinking about their path, their journey, how they're going to get better. Yeah, I think that's number one. And they're also deliberate in the way that they take it on. They, they know what they're doing to train. They're, they listen to their bodies and, and try not to over. That's very difficult to do in a, in a sport like surfing, where you're just addicted to the activity. 
you know, I didn't go yesterday. That was really hard for me, but you know, I've been really sore from the last few days and, and it, that's, that comes with age, I guess, but knowing, knowing how to train, taking it on and having a path, trying to hit metrics is very important as well. I mean, it's all the same stuff. I would say everybody probably says this stuff. But you're absolutely correct. I mean, metrics are so important. And again, being able to look at what we're doing, what is observed is changed by observation, meaning that we're going to hopefully elevate knowing that there's a, a film on us or that our, our friends are watching us. And again, that's a, a way for us to get into that flow state and control an adrenalized state, at least to an extent. It's funny. Josh and I have an ongoing argument about different ways to train and we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. But the one thing that we both have is that we are just all in on what we're doing. And the th thought I had the other day is, wouldn't it be really funny if we've been battling about how to train for this whole thing, but that's, that's not even important. It doesn't matter. As long as you have that crazy obsessed gene where you have to get really, really good at something, it doesn't matter which path you take, you're going to get there. I mean, maybe you get there a little bit quicker than someone else, but you know, like Steph Curry showing up to shoot hundred balls before every game, he, he's got that gene. Right. So maybe it doesn't have as much to do with the training as it does with just being all in on what you're doing. Yeah. There are many paths to the top of the mountain. I absolutely agree. And again, sometimes we'll battle semantics with somebody in the process of trying to say the same thing. But like you said, in the end, it comes down to, can you find this obsession? And then can you pour every ounce of your soul into it? How do people find that sort of obsession? Because a lot of people think that it just like falls upon them like a butterfly in a field, as opposed to them going out actively and finding these. In my experience, you find a general area or idea, and then you pursue that area with this awareness, and then gradually that sort of narrows down. And then eventually, either you're combining things from other areas that you've already learned into this one thing, and it dovetails into this uniqueness that you are, or maybe you find somebody, like you said, like a coach or somebody to emulate in the process. So how do you find the activity? I would say exposure. I mean, see what speaks to you. and pull on threads that are intriguing and you don't know what's, what's going to happen with those things. I'm in a huge dive right now in music production. I didn't know that that was going to happen. I've always played music, but my daughter's gotten really into songwriting and you know, the pandemic was terrible for so many things, but we were really locked down because my wife had a brain tumor and she has some ongoing issues with um, that. We didn't know if it was going to hit her harder than other people. It turns out we had COVID. She was fine, but we locked down really hard at the beginning. My daughter wrote like 150 songs over four months or whatever it was. And wow. Really cool. And so we started working with some producers with her and, you know, we started doing it together. And that's a really, really cool thing to be able to share is a passion with your kids. And that's one of the things we were talking a little bit about this before that for parenting is something I think about a lot of trying to prepare my kids for this crazy world that they're going to live in, which is going to be very different, I believe, than the world that we lived in, right. is finding passions that you can share with them so that you have a common language and a desired shared experience to where they can learn the lessons you want to teach them without them even really knowing because you're doing it together in something that you both love. And so it's really, it's really quite beautiful how it's worked out for me because my son loves to surf and to foil and we spend a ton of time in the water. My daughter never really took to that, but then all of my other passions, music, and my daughter started to just love songwriting. And now we do that. She actually had a, she's, she's 14 years old and this boy that she's friends with, just friends, she's 14. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he comes over the other day because they're going to write a song together and they write a song and then 
it was actually pretty good. And she goes, dad, will you, will you hang out with Ethan and I and produce the song for us? And so you got two 14 year old kids sitting there with a dad doing music together. It's pretty cool. Wow. That is epic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's uh, happening all over the place right now. <laughs> no. I looked at my wife, like she walked into the room and she smiled, she walked out. It was like, it's pretty cool. And that's what was so neat. You were saying how with her and with your son, if we as parents or as instructors or whatever, try to artificially plant something into somebody else, even if they want to please us or be good at this, whatever the skill set is, it's not going to come from them. It's not going to be like their own inception, so to speak. But you were saying that you would go surfing and then your son eventually asked you if he could go. So Mm -hmm. as opposed to you trying to say, Hey, we have to go out. We're going to get you aboard. You're going to be out there doing it. That's why he's been able to cultivate this passion naturally and organically, as opposed to it being this artificial thing. The same thing with your daughter. And I, I think that's so powerful because music is emotion. You know, it's the ability to express that. And even if the notes are not always perfect, the emotion still is translated well. An interesting thing about her and music, and this is probably our greatest collective parenting moment that almost we didn't even realize was a parenting moment was that when she was probably, she's 14 now, she was probably five or six. She took to the habit of singing to the top of her lungs in the shower every day. She didn't think anyone could hear, but it was terrible. (laughs) And it was ridiculously loud. And it was every day for until now. She still does it. (laughs) She's doing it this today. Our joke, it was like three years into this. We never told her. And we never said anything bad and we never told her we could hear. And you know, three or four years into this, Sarah and I would look at each other and just be like, well, we know what she's not going to do. And then right around nine or 10, she just started getting on key. And now she has basic, perfect pitch. She's not off. Like I auto-tune her stuff a little bit just for corrections. And she's never off by more than 10 cents. It's, it's fantastic. You know, and I think about how easy it would have been to derail her from what is her favorite thing to do right now by saying something negative along the way, because you can turn people off really quickly. And we were just lucky enough to never say anything negative. It wasn't like we never, we, it wasn't a plan. We just, you know, thought it was cute that she's singing in the shower super loud. We never wanted to tell her. And now, you know, she's a brilliant singer. And now I've told her that story. She thinks it's hilarious. She probably will end up doing something in music and it's going to be a great story. Yeah. And that's a a powerful path to be on for sure. There's a million things that I'd like to talk about, but you know my story about adversity and I've never met a person who's successful at what they do that hasn't been through some sort of adversity. In fact, there's usually a direct correlation to how how they conduct themselves in the face of that and then how they're able to sort of channel that into this higher level of performance. Can you tell us about an adversity that you went through that at the time felt like you weren't going to be able to get through it, but yet now that you're beyond that, you saw what it created in you, the skill set, the grit, the integrity, whatever that may be. The most powerful story. I mean, obviously there's a lot, everyone's gone through a lot of stuff, but the most powerful story for me was that well, I mean, my wife and I have been together since we were 20 soulmates immediately just, you know, met, spent a whole night just talking. And that was it for me, it made life very easy for me because there was no decision to be made there. And, and it was just a wonderful thing. And best friends since we were, you know, going on 21 years now. And four, four, actually five years ago, I could tell something was off with her. And it was subtle at first. She'd get sick and she couldn't get better. And then this is a story I don't tell a lot, but it's an interesting thing. It's about self-belief too. 
she would get sick. She, she couldn't get better. And there was a lot of like weird things that were happening. And probably four or five months into this, one time, I think she almost died. She, uh, she got food poisoning and she just could not recover. She was in bed for a week. Oh God. And, you know, I took her, we were living in Costa Rica and the medical care in Costa Rica is okay. I mean, there are things that are okay about it, but it's not United States. People complain about medicine in the States. And I mean, there are a lot of problems with it, like the amount of wait times and, you know, how backburnered you get, you don't get that in Costa Rica, but the actual level of help you get here is much better. And I started taking her to people to try to figure out what's going on. You know, she couldn't get better from this one illness. And then yeah, she started forgetting things. And so we had seen this top infectious disease disease doctor in, in Costa Rica at the private hospital. And then, you know, we were in San Francisco and saw a brilliant doctor out there and had every blood test you can possibly have done, done, and they couldn't figure it out and went to see a, uh, the head infectious disease expert at Emory, the, the top guy, Henry Wu at, at Emory, because everyone thought infectious disease because we lived in Costa Rica and it was presenting as weird stuff. I knew something was wrong. And actually Josh helped me out a lot with this just because he was helping me in the process of, of, of dealing with all this stuff. But you know, I knew something was wrong and other people didn't see it because it was subtle. And so I kept chasing and kept chasing. And it was to the point where I was chasing pretty hard because I, I had a really bad feeling for a little while. And it was some weird things where you'd be meditating and you just like, just overabundance of urgency would hit me. And that was a, some very powerful moments in there. I saw her laying on a table during a meditation one time, and it just scares me. Like to this day, it's like the most haunting image I've ever seen. And, and I think that was really powerful in helping us figure out what happened. I actually had a doctor one time I called because I was like, look, I'm, this is happening. We still haven't figured this out. This is long into the process, about two weeks before we found her brain tumor. And the doctor's like, look, I think that at this point, you need to start thinking this is, might be more about you than about her. And I was like, nope. But there's a lot. My mom didn't believe it. Family didn't believe what was going on. And it would have been very easy just to turn away and, you know, just be like, oh, it's something she's going to get over it. But finally I lied. I called the, the hospital in, in Costa Rica and said I had a doctor's uh, note. We, we saw a, a neurology in, at Emory. They wouldn't give her an MRI. They're like, you don't need one. She tested well on her cognitive tests. And I'm like, you don't know how smart she is. This, she's off. She's incredibly smart. And then I lied and, and said I had a doctor's order to get an, an MRI in Costa Rica and took it. We found a brain tumor. And then we had to move back from Costa Rica. I brought passports just in case we found something. And the kids came with us. We left Costa Rica after 11 years of living there. The next day, and didn't go back for eight months. And we moved with the clothes, literally moved with the clothes on our backs, countries. It's the most crazy thing you can you could think of. Meanwhile, we come back, we find a brain tumor. I think it was on a Tuesday. Sarah's in surgery on a Thursday for the to, to relieve hydrocephalus. And then there was like this crazy moment where the last month, she couldn't remember anything. It was like really strange. She didn't really, I had, had to tell her three times that I thought something was really wrong, have this emotional conversation with her. And the next day she wouldn't remember she had it. Oh God. Why? I, I didn't know what, I, I didn't know what was going on. And no one else saw this because she could still operate. And then there was a week where she had the, her, she had a shunt put in to drain the hydrocephalus and she woke back up. So then there's this crazy week of having to go through all of that again with her being now fully cognitive, going into a brain surgery. And that most she's such a Buddha. She's like, she's an incredible person. And she 
went into a very substantial brain surgery. She had a craniofrangioma, but it was, it, so it's non, it's non-cancerous. It's a benign tumor. It's centered right in the middle of your brain. And, and hers was big. It was like size of a golf ball, a little bit bigger. She went into that surgery with a heart rate, not on medication, a heart rate of like 57. And it was like, my heart rate was 190 <laughs> at least. It was terrible. And then in the surgery, I thought she died in surgery. It was supposed to be a four-hour surgery. And she was in surgery for nine hours and they wouldn't tell me what happened. And that was like, that was like the worst moment by far of my life. And so we are, you know, like that was heavy. Then she's in neuro ICU for two weeks and I stayed with her. And it was like, that was the moment of living in neuro ICU with her. She woke up, she remembered who I was, which we didn't know if that was going to happen. And then it's like, wait a second, you know, like Sarah's going to be back. And she still had to go through radiation and it was still a long next year, but what do I do? Like I've spent 11 years building a life. Like, you know, like we were like pretty set to just run surf camps, just surf all day, rent some properties out and just chill. Like that's all I wanted to do. And it was, we'd figured it out. I also think sometimes when you have those feelings, like you figured it out, life goes, ha ha, just watch. Absolutely. So I agree. You know, it's two times that's happened to me where I'm like, ah, I kind of figured this out. And then rug, yep. totally gone. But, you know, I decided while we were in, um, while I was staying with her in neuro ICU, I didn't want to be the guy that was just pissed off for the rest of his life because his dream got ripped away. And so I can't talk about the project that I do now, but I dreamed up the most insane project you've ever heard of and have some really good friends who believed in it as well and spent the last four years like building the coolest thing I could ever think of to where I'm now happier in the States than I ever was in Costa Rica. And I think if it wasn't for that moment, like there was just a decision I made, like the coolest stuff I've ever done is not behind me. And, um, just took that on as a challenge. And, you know, I hope I don't ever have another challenge like that, but in retrospect, it was kind of like, a, you know, that hand you're dealt thing is something I've always kind of lived by. And I had this thought like, well, here you go, new hand. And that's the thing. It's it's one thing to believe something or see something or read something that sounds powerful in the moment. But when you're the one in it and all this stuff is coming to your mind and it just sounds like a bunch of flowery bullshit, you're like, yeah, that's fine. It's easier for you to say, you're not fucking in this chair right now with me or, or you're not dealing with what I'm dealing with. And that's when we really learn, again, that cleaves all the stuff that we're, we're not and shows us what we really are. And those are the moments when we have to be very honest and say, okay, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm dealt this hand. But am I going to actually be able to execute on this? Am I going to actually be able to be who I think I am in this moment? And that's, that's where it's so brutal. But yet you turned it into something that was brutally beautiful to help you. And now your connection, again, you never would be doing these projects had that not happened to you. And now the urgency that you have and the gratitude that you get, the, the empathy that you develop from that. People always say, you know, when I talk about adversity being a gift, they just think it's like this rah, rah, rah thing. It's like, no, it's like, if you've ever been knocked down and you had somebody pick you up, you will always remember that person that picked you up. You will always remember how it felt to have somebody stop and care about you. And that will embolden you to have the empathy for somebody else when you see them or when you see them not having a good day or that person cut you off in traffic or this person's acting a certain way to you. You can step back and say, well, again, this isn't me. This is what they're going through. That kind of puts your ego in check and that humility is there. And I agree with you when we have hubris. It's devastating. Notice it's hubris sometimes, right? Absolutely. Think like, hey, I've worked really hard, but there's a lot of luck in everything. That was uh, 
It's a crazy, a crazy ride. You know, we talk about it as a family a lot. You know, one of the things that we do very frequently, we call it the grateful game. We just go around and we just talk about all the things we're thankful for. And it was what got us through the months directly after. I mean, it was like the whirlwind of what happened, but then there was the calming, the settling. And it's just like, our kids had their whole life. They were both born in Costa Rica. Their whole lives were there. All their friends were there. They just got ripped out of all of that. And then Sarah having to go through, you know, radiation and then the fucking checkups every three months where you get a new scan, are you there? And then at six months, she had one that looked bad and it was just, it was the worst. And then you have to wait another three months for the next one. But what happened was it, it had inflamed after radiation and then it went away and it was never supposed to go away completely. And so her brain was on the cover of a neuroscience magazine to not have to deal with that six month MRI ever again. But what we talk about as family, it's like, wouldn't wish what we went through on anyone, but I wouldn't want to give up what I learned along the way. And our kids, they're not 12 and 14. I mean, they're 12 and 14, but they're like adults from what they went through. Like we treat them like adults at this point. Like they went through the whole thing. They've been a part of the projects that I've been doing and it's really cool. It's interesting to see them interact with other kids because they, they like change <laughs> to hang out with kids, but they're like just little, little humans that are really well balanced. I hope from all this and yeah, there's, there's a silver lining in everything, I guess. There is, but there's, like you said, there's that difference. It's easy for us to be grateful when everything's going well, but mm-hmm. it's sometimes hard to find the gratitude when we're going through that stuff. So the fact that you were able to, as a family, educate yourself and kind of go through that together. It built that bond, not only the individual bonds, but the individual specifically, but then the bonds that you have together. And that's, uh, again, something that you couldn't have gotten any other way. And I'm so glad that she's doing well. I'm so glad that the family is doing well now. I think that's a testament to what you do, frankly. I think it's a testament to Sarah. Sarah is the most balanced, supportive. I wouldn't have done any of the things that I've done without how incredible she has been in support of, there's not a lot of wives that would sign up for on paper anyways, it's turned out. Okay. (laughs) You know, we were like, we just moved to Costa Rica and I was like, we're going to make this work. And we loved living down there, but I had two businesses. We had started in in Florida that were doing fairly well. You know, after two years of starting those, they're just started to do well. We moved to Costa Rica and started over. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah, Four times now, which is fun. I love starting over. I don't think people start over enough. You get to take all of the skills you've learned doing something and now apply them to something where you haven't made any mistakes yet. Your next iteration should be a lot better than the previous one. We, we were six months behind on rent and we ran out of ramen noodle. And we were like, we can go back. And I still I had six month deals with both companies. I was just supposed to be a six month trip, come back or else I had to give up equity. And we decided to stay and give up equity. And I also think that's an important thing too, is that the big wins always come after most people would have given up. You know, and you just have to be, well, I don't know, bullheaded enough or whatever it is to go past that point. And then generally, the universe says, okay, you paid your dues. Let's go. Well, in my experience, the same thing. The universe will give you contingency plans. Like you said, they'll give you a contingency plan to see if you'll go for it. And then it's like, okay, well, you gave up on the big plan. We're going to give you this little contingency plan. So you just have to be resolute. Can you give us a little insight into what your meditation practice is? I understand that being on the surfboard probably feels meditative in many ways, but do you have sort of a, is it like a Zazen? What do you kind of, what's your practice look like? So I don't really meditate in the normal sense anymore. I 
did, I don't know, the headspace stuff and then found practice that worked for me in the past. And now I, I do a lot of HRV breathing. Mm-hmm. Leah Lagos is incredible and she works with Josh and I, I've gotten to spend some time with her and, and she's wonderful and has helped me with actually during that whole process, Josh connected me with Leah and, you know, I did heavy HRV breathing every day. Uh, and it was very good. And I also, I hate running. Running is the worst thing in the world. Uh, and I was I agree. Running, running myself into the ground just to like take the edge off every day. But for meditation now, I'm a big believer that the either in training or in just whatever you're mulling, when you give yourself quiet space, I, ideas just happen for me. So I don't, I don't meditate in the same way that I used to, but I'll lay down probably twice a day. And then before I go to sleep and just see what percolates. And so it's not a real, med- sometimes it's two minutes, sometimes it's 20 minutes. Generally, I have my best ideas during those moments. Or if there's something, and I use it for training all the time, like if I surf, optimal training for me is I want to get waves and have it on video. I watch video immediately following waves so that there's the least amount of time between feeling and review. So I can assess exactly what happened. And if I do it within about an hour, I can actually still close my eyes and feel the turn. I can feel exactly what happened. Then I'll lay down and I'll resurf the session in places that I, I want to change something or improve. And that's replaced meditation for me at this point. I play a lot of music and I, and I do a lot of foiling and both of those are pretty cool states. So I haven't felt the need. You made a comment during the interview that you did with um, Anders Ericsson. You were saying that, was it Red Bull that did research? Can you tell a little bit about that for our listeners? Because I think it's pretty interesting. Red Bull did a study where they put brain monitors on surfers, on athletes, and the alpha waves, I believe it's alpha waves, alpha waves that yes. surfers hit while riding waves are as deep or deeper than monks in deep meditation. And I think foiling, it'd be interesting to do it to a foiler's brain because it's a much deeper state for a much longer period of time. I mean, it's very common that we're doing minutes on minutes of flight and it's all very tapped in because it's, it's interesting in that, that the state from foiling is incredibly deep because you have to manage a three-dimensional space. It's like flying a surfboard through a set of rings because you have to keep your height level at all times and you balance that front to back. That's, that's not involved in surfing. Surfing, you have to do some forward back, but it's much more subtle on a foil and much more consequential. If you look at surfing like 2D, foiling is 3D. So your brain's just handling so much. So the aperture just has to be fully present the whole entire time. And I think it's why so many people switch to foiling and then just never go back. What is the craziest thing that's ever happened to you on a surfboard or a foil board? Foil board? Uh, my favorites are either when I'm sharing waves with Demo, my son, or with dolphins. Like I've had some, the other day I was doing a shore runner and linked up with like two dolphins that were riding the same bump as me for like 20 seconds. Wow. It was just cool that, and I feel like dolphins are very conscious animals to be sharing that experience with like a whole different species was pretty, was pretty incredible. That was a cool walk back from that one shared a moment. That universal consciousness in that moment. Yeah. That was cool. And then yeah, sharing waves with, with demos. Incredible. Actually, you know, a lot of the, the probably the best moments were when Sarah was really sick, she was homeschooling at the time. She couldn't homeschool anymore. I was coaching. So Damo, who was seven, would have to paddle out with me in these really big days. Wow. He, he's a good waterman, but he'd be out there and I'd be 
on the reef, there was a reef about a quarter mile offshore from, from where we lived in uh, Playa Garza. He would paddle out there and some of the guys that I'd be with, big, strong dudes, right? Be nervous. They'd be scared. And Damo was like seven. And one of my buddies tells a story to where they're caught inside together. And my buddy said, he's freaking out. Cause it's like, you know, overhead, big waves dumping on him. And Damo looks over and he just goes, we got this, you can do it. And, uh, wow. <laughs> my buddy's like, I can't be scared if there's a seven-year-old next to me telling me I'm fine. Like it's a good one. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the beauty of being able to connect like that. And, uh, again, nature keeps us humble. There's no punishments. There's no rewards. There's just the consequences of, of our preparation or lack thereof it. And I think that that preparation is what allowed Damos to be able to tell that guy in that moment, hey, you're going to be fine. We're going to yeah. make it out of here. They just do, for sure. All right, Eric, I could talk to you forever, but I will be respectful of your time and let you go out there and down those ways. I know you're chomping at the bits to get out there. So our listeners can learn more about you at the Progression Project podcast. And then is that also the, the website? There's no website. Instagram, project if you want to follow and see foiling. And then the podcast is 80% foil surfing as a way to interpret deliberate practice. And some cool conversations with guys like Chris Rasman, he's a pro snowboarder about flow. You know, every once in a while, I'll get curious about flow again and talk to some rad folks about that. But yeah, that's it. This has been awesome. Oh, thank you so much. I, uh, in addition to Anders and Josh, you've also had, who was the, uh, the backstroker? Oh, Aaron Pearsall. I never released that show. Oh, really? He's a buddy. Yeah, that was right when Sarah got sick. There was like four shows that I just never released because they were like in a weird time. Wow. And they felt weird. See, I, yeah. haven't, I was going to say I hadn't got to hear that one, but I heard you refer to it when you were talking to, to Andrew. So, yeah, Aaron Pierce also. A lot of lessons from that guy. Very good dude. And that's what I find in, in martial arts. They say this, but I think it's with any art form. The, the highest levels, there's a lot of similarities in all these things. So, whether it be in surfing, whether it be in foreign land martial arts, anything. You, you find those those commonalities, those characteristics. And I think that that's what's so beautiful when, especially at the people that you're talking to at these high levels, you see this continuity, you see these things that are consistent. And I think that if nothing else, understanding, like you said, presence, being able to focus and then on that passion and just continue to just cultivate that as much as you possibly can and feed that fire. I think it's really hard to go wrong if you're trying to do that with the, with the deliberate practice. Yeah. And you can learn a lot from folks in other disciplines too because they generally have a different approach embody that. But this has been a crazy good conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for the time. I, I wanted it to be crazy good. And as we both, if you guys can see the notes that we send each other, we have a metric ton of stuff that we could have gone through, but I like the direction that this went and it seemed to just kind of unfold as it should. So thank you very much. And I look forward to other conversations with you as well in the future, my friend. Awesome. Thank All you, right. Marcus. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.